0: Congratulations, Brenda and Charlotte. Just wow, this is great news for Brenda and Charlotte. I was unaware. Charlotte was also unaware, but you know, um, it's clearly a thinly veiled announcement. We are just so thrilled for Team Willis and anybody else that gets pregnant in this season as well. As Brenda said, this is the final message in the series of Exodus. Can you believe it? So turn in your Bibles, please, to Exodus chapter forty. You know, we started this series on the 29th of July, 2018, some 21 months ago. That was back in the day when we were allowed to go to each other's houses and hug. Even Parramatta Church was still actually with us at that point. And yet 21 months later and some 52 messages later, we now find ourselves right at the end of this book. And what an ending it is. It is an incredible ending that we see here in chapter 40. So although we are going to be studying chapters 35 through 40, I'll be able to pull those chapters into chapter 40 as we'll make sense as we proceed. We are going to read chapter 40 verses 1 through 38. So let us enjoy the word of God together. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying on the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and you shall put in it the ark of the testimony, and you shall screen the ark with the veil, and you shall bring in the table and arrange it, and you shall bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps, and you shall put the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony, and set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. You shall set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and And place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar, and put water in it. And you shall set up the court all around, and hang up the screen for the gate of the court. Then you shall take the anointing oil, and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it, and consecrate it and all its furniture, so that it may may become holy. You shall also anoint the the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils, and consecrate the altar. So that the altar may may become most holy. You shall also anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate it. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting. And shall wash them with water. And put on Aaron the holy garments. And you shall anoint him and consecrate him. That he may serve me as priest. You shall bring his sons also and put coats on them. And anoint them as you anointed their father. That they may serve me as priests. And their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. This Moses did according to all the Lord commanded him, so he did. In the first month of the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its bases and set up its frames. And he put in its poles and raised up its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle... And put the covering of the tent over it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the testimony and put it in the ark and put the poles on the ark and set the mercy seat above the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the screen and screened the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the temple in the tent, he put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the veil. And arranged the bread on it before the Lord, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tent of meeting, opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle. And set up the lamps before the Lord, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil. And burnt fragrant incense on it, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put in place the screen for the door of the tabernacle. He set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and offered on it the burnt offering and the grain offering as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet. When they went into the tent of meeting and when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate on the court. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night. And the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. If you're making notes, and want a title for this message. I've called it, When Glory Came Down. And let's pray and ask the Lord for help. Lord, this has indeed been quite the adventure. Walking with your people through the Exodus has opened our eyes to the glories of what it means to be drawn out, to be drawn in. Our Lord, as with every conclusion, this one in your word is truly profound as well. I pray that you'd open our eyes to the jewels and the treasures right here in chapter 40. Lord, help me communicate as well as I can so that we may all delight in your word together. Holy Spirit, be with us. Open our eyes to the marvel of this moment when glory came down. In Jesus' name, Amen. You know, if we were to go out today and interview people this morning and ask them, what do you think is your greatest need right now? I'm sure the answers that we would get would be many and varied. I think for some people they would respond very quickly. The greatest need that I have right now is to get out of isolation. It is to get out of my house. It is to see my friends and my family. It is to be around people. For others, they might say, particularly if your parents have young children, that the greatest need I have right now is for schools to reopen. You know, my kids are finding out right now how dense I really am. That's what I'm experiencing every day of my life. I need the schools to be reopened. So for some, they might think, that's what I need right now. Schools. I need schools and childcare. For others, it might be a paycheck. You know, it's been a challenging season for some. And so my greatest need now is for money and a job which I can support myself and where applicable my family with as well. For others, they might say their greatest need is for health. Our greatest need maybe is for some type of vaccination so that we can be vaccinated against coronavirus and we can get on with our lives. Or maybe it's a different issue that we're facing but nonetheless health-related. And so the first thing that comes to mind as we consider what our greatest need is right now is healing from the very thing that we have going wrong. And yet the Bible teaches us again and again that our greatest need, more than anything else, is for the presence of God himself. Psalm 16 verse 11 It says, for in your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The Bible would teach us again and again that our greatest need is not for health, or wealth, or pay, or to get out of isolation. Our greatest need is for Him to be in His presence, to be amongst His. Him, where there is no hope, He will give us hope in His presence. Where there is no encouragement, He will give us encouragement in His presence. Where there is no courage, He will give us courage in His presence. For at His right hand, there are pleasures forevermore in His presence. There is fullness of joy. And as this book concludes, it is this very presence that we now see dwelling right in. In the middle of his people. See this is indeed a staggering conclusion. See all the way through this book. We have seen some pretty incredible things. Like all good stories and good books and good narratives, the endings are so important, aren't they? The endings, they either help us see that they lived happily ever after, that it went well for them, or it was difficult, or somebody died, or somebody received grace. The ending is where the story has been leading all the time. And this ending is no different. It's an incredible ending. And we have seen on this journey with Israel some amazing things. We've seen how God drew his people out of slavery in Egypt. For 400 years they had been in slavery to Egypt. Pharaoh would not let them go. They are literally in bondage and chains with no escape and no way out. But God in his grace draws them out of slavery. He stands in opposition even to the might of Pharaoh And through plagues and ultimately then through the Red Sea, his people are drawn out. And we see then God in his power and grace provides for them again and again as they walk the wilderness. He provides manna from heaven for them to eat. He provides water for them to drink. He even gives them commandments to live by. Instructions as he helps them see, listen, this is how it's going to go well for you. You are my people, I am your God. This is the, my gracious path of life for you. This is how I want you to behave, both for my glory and your good. And we've seen and incredibly how God makes a covenant with them. How he explains to this people that if they will obey his voice, then they, then he, they will in turn be a holy nation, a royal priesthood. They will be his treasured possession, not just now, but for all eternity. And yet, as the story continued all the way through the chapters, there's still something missing. And What is missing is the presence of God right in the middle of His people. A manifest presence that would show to them and to the world that I am your God. And I am with you. I will be right in the middle of you. And to God's glory, that is exactly what happens here in Exodus chapter 40. As the glory of the Lord comes down and fills the tabernacle, a tabernacle which would have been positioned right in the middle of all the tribe's tents around it. And God dwells right in the middle of it all. It's where this story has been leading all the time, not just to have them drawn out, but to be drawn into his very presence. It's amazing. It is incredible. There's two things I want you to see about this chapter and this incredible ending this morning. Number one, I want you to see how profound it is. And number two, I want you to see how pregnant it is. Because this story actually hasn't really finished. So number one, a profound ending. Point one, a profound ending. And it is indeed profound. It's profound for a number of reasons. It's climactic and crescendoing for a number of reasons. One of the reasons is because quite clearly, Moses finally gets it. Moses finally understands what's going on. Moses is the leader of God's people and finally it would appear that the penny has dropped. Because right here in this chapter, we see him finally simply and faithfully listening to God and doing what he says. See, it's a simple lesson, but it's taken Moses 40 chapters to get there. To finally understand who God really is and to listen to him and just go, okay, well, you're God, you're Yahweh, I'll go ahead and do it. In a way that is trusting and loving and faithful towards the Lord. This is not where Moses started out, okay? Remind yourself, in Exodus chapter 3, verses 16 through 4, chapter 4, verse 17, we have the wonderful narrative of the burning bush. It's the moment where God first speaks to Moses. Moses is out one day, he's walking his sheep, he's walking his herds. He sees this this bush that is burning but not being consumed. And he's wondering, what's going on with that? So he goes up to it and he realizes this bush is aflame but it is not being consumed. What is going on? And at that point God speaks to him from the burning bush. And he helps him see, Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. It's time. I'm going to release these people. I'm going to draw them out of slavery. I've heard their cries. And five times, Moses pushes back on God. Five times as if God's just his mate, just somebody he's hanging with. He's like, listen, thanks, but no thanks. This isn't going to work out. That's Moses' introduction in these whole chapters in terms of his relationship with God. Five times pushing back on God. God instructs Moses to go. Five times Moses effectively says, no, thank you. The first time God speaks to him, he says, but Lord, who am I? Effectively, Lord, I've already had a go. I I tried before, remember, and it didn't go very well. So, So I can't do this. And secondarily, Lord, who are you? I'm going to get there and they're going to say, well, who sent you? And what am I meant to say? I don't even know who you really are. So God tells him who he really is, that he's Yahweh, the great I am. At which point Moses said, well, okay, listen, I get that. But, but, but Lord, what if they don't believe me? What if I go and they don't really believe me? So God tells him to, to throw down his staff and it becomes a snake, to put his hand in his cloak, it becomes leprous. And so Moses then says, listen, okay, but listen, I have a speech impediment. <laughs> I know, it's awkward and you probably weren't aware, but yeah, I can't speak very well. So we need to find somebody else who can speak really well because it ain't going to happen through me. And then his final pushback is, oh Lord, please just send someone else. Lord, here I am, send someone else. That was Moses in the early days. Not full of faith, not full of obedience before the Lord, but now we see many weeks and months on from this moment. In fact, actually, specifically a year to the day when it comes to their release from the Red Sea. You will notice it in verse 2 there. Verse 2 there, it says, On the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle. It's really important. In verse 17, it helps you see this is exactly a year on to the day. They've been released from the Red Sea. They've come through the Red Three. Exactly a year later, Moses built the tabernacle. And what does Moses do? He simply does it. He listens to God's instruction and he faithfully just does what he says. That's why we read seven times in this chapter the words as the Lord had commanded Moses. They're not just throw away words. They're meant to help us understand. Thank the Lord. Moses has finally got it. There's no argument. There's no discussion. It's just, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. I will do it. I trust you. I love you. I know you. I- Amen. Moses finally understands. And so he faithfully and lovingly builds the tabernacle. And as you remember from chapters 25 through 30, the tabernacle is God's own house. And so what a tabernacle, what a building this now is that Moses is piecing and putting together in this chapter. See, in chapters 25 through 30, God gives Moses clear instructions of what this tabernacle, God's own house, is going to need to look like. In chapters 35 to 39 then, we see the people of God actually making the tabernacle, making the ark and making all the things to go in it and making the fences and the curtains. And then in chapter 40, we see Moses putting it all together. And it is an incredible tabernacle see if we can go ahead and put that first slide up so people can see this tabernacle would have looked something like this if you look overhead first of all this tabernacle that Moses here in this chapter finally puts together would have been surrounded first and foremostly by a rectangular courtyard it was about 46 metres by 23 metres it was all marked off by 2.3 metre high curtains This outer courtyard area then would be a place that all of Israel could go at different times. And it would be the place where all of Israel could come and offer sacrifices to God, making use of the bronze basin and the bronze altar. And then ahead of them, we have the holy place. This would be the place that was nine and a half meters by four and a half meters. This would be a place that only the priests could go which is why it would be separated by a curtain between the people and where the priests would go. But beyond those curtains, there would be a branch lampstand and a table of showbread and an altar of incense. And then going on just a little bit further, we come to the Holy of Holies, right in the middle. A 4.5 meter by 4.5 meter cube separated off by a beautiful and ornate curtain. And just once a year, the great high priest would be able to go into that Holy of Holies. And in that Holy of Holies, right in the middle of it was the Ark of the Covenant, the place where God himself said he would come and dwell. For visual learners, it would have looked something like this second slide that I want to show you this morning. So you can see from that picture just how beautiful and ornate and adorned this tabernacle really was. And each part of that ornateness and beauty was designed to point to the holiness and majesty and splendor of God himself. And so it did. The fabrics that would be used in this tabernacle, the preciousness of the material increased as you get closer. And so in the outer courts, the fabric used would be cream or white linen. A little further in then, you would see it being used with goat skin. Then you would come to the tabernacle curtains. This would be expensive wool, indeed most expensive wool. And then in the Holy of Holies, the curtains would be made of three dyed wool layers, interlaced with two great cherubim. Even the colors that are being used in this tabernacle have great reference. Purple always pointed to royalty. And blue always pointed to divinity. And so even in the way this is being designed by God, it points to His majesty and splendor and holiness. And even the metals being used. Bronze in the outer courts. Silver as you get closer. Gold in the Holy of Holies. It all pointed to how holy and majestic and incredible God really is. And incredibly, seven times we read that Moses simply built it exactly as God had commanded. Moses finally gets it. And right here in this chapter, he just faithfully and obediently, on the first day of the first month of the second year, puts it all together as God has instructed him. And what's also incredible is the people right here at the ending, well, quite clearly, they finally get it as well. They too are minor players in this story alongside Moses, and they too quite clearly, finally get it. You see here in chapters 35 through 39, you see here very real evidence of the people finally getting it. Because time and time again, these chapters illustrate the people's repentance. Not primarily then with tears or sackcloth or tearing of garments in regret, but in very real and concrete expressions of joyful obedience towards the Lord. Joyful obedience to him. Joyful obedience, understanding that you are God. You are good. You are the one who alone is worthy of praise with all that I have and all of my life. And so for example, in Exodus chapter 36, verses 3 to 7, this is what we read. It says, And they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing work on the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him free will offerings every morning, so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came, each from the task that he was doing, and said to Moses, the people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave command, and word was proclaimed throughout the camp, let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing, for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. Now imagine, these are the people that seemingly just a few months earlier had assumed God was dead, Moses was no more, and so put everything together to build a calf that they wanted to worship. It would appear they finally learnt their lesson, at least for now, That they are indeed God's chosen treasured possession. They are his royal priesthood. They are a holy nation. And so in love and obedience to the Lord. Lord, take everything I have. It is all yours. I want to worship you. Throughout those chapters then, you see people giving to the building of the tabernacle and giving of their time and their energies and gifts, understanding everything I have is by the Lord, both my abilities and my belongings, so Lord have it all. And they came together to build and to weave and to carve and to get ready these different parts of the tabernacle. And then in chapter 40, verse 33, we read, So Moses finished the work. He finally took all that the people had created and he puts it together. Starting in the middle and working his way out as God had commanded, he puts it all together. And as the final tie goes on the final curtain, we read, so Moses finished the work. And then, my friends, comes the most profound moment in the entire book. Because it is the moment when the glory of the Lord finally comes down. Look with me at verse 34. It says, And the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Right in the middle of God's people. Right in the middle of the camp. The tabernacle has finally been built. And the glory of the Lord comes down and goes in. To his house. This is incredible. This is a profound and staggering moment. You see the people of God had seen glimpses of God's glory before. They had indeed seen it in the pillar of cloud by day. And the fire by night that protected them from Pharaoh's army and guided them through the wilderness. They had seen it in the miracle of the Red Sea. When God himself had been glorified in their deliverance and in, their destruction of, in the destruction of Egypt. And they had seen God's glory in the fire and smoke that was coming from the distant heights of Mount Sinai. And Moses had seen this glory before, at least in small part. Well, I suppose he'd only really seen the back of it. But he had seen something of it when he was with God on the mountain. But neither Moses nor the people of God had seen anything like this before. Neither Moses nor the people of God had never seen, they have never seen in full the Shekinah glory of God. God himself in a theophany, in a cloud, coming and sitting down in the middle of his people. None of them had ever seen anything like this before. This is the climax of the whole book. Too many movies on Exodus finish as they go through the Red Sea. (laughs) That is not the climax. This is the climax. They have been drawn out, but they have been drawn out to be drawn in. And right here, God is coming to sit among them. Right in the middle of them all. all. Right in the presence of his people, his glory is being manifest. Philip Ryken, in his wonderful commentary, says it this way. He says, Neither Moses nor the Israelites had ever seen the glory of God come down to earth in all its radiant splendor, as it did now as it hovered over the tabernacle, filling that sacred place with glory. This cloud of God's glory was a theophany, a visible manifestation of the invisible God. For God's glory is the weightiness of His divine being, the infinite perfection of his triune deity. Listen. God's glory is the whole godness of God. And so it is. God's glory is the whole godness of God. And right now, as soon as the final tie goes on the curtain, boom. God's glory descends on this tabernacle. Epi Meyer. Describes what it may have been like when he says the following. He says the tabernacle was literally pulsating with radiation. I love that. As the people gathered around this structure that's been built, the center of it is literally pulsating with radiation as God's glory is being shone from its presence. He continues, For this brilliant light of surpassing glory, he is spoken of as the glory of the Lord which was undoubtedly the divine Shekinah glory, shone from within the tabernacle itself, so much so that the very curtains were transfigured by its glow, and the whole tabernacle made resplendent with glory. This is the whole moment that Exodus has been drawing us toward. They have been drawn out, but they are now being drawn in. God himself, In all his might and all his glory and all his presence is coming down to reside with his people. He will physically, through this theophany, be now present with them. They've seen glimpses of this before, but nothing like this. And now he's right in the middle of them all. In all his glory. In all his might. In all his majesty, and all his holiness, he is now living right in the middle of his people. And there is no mistaking that God is in the house. Everybody knows it. Everybody sees it. Everybody is it. Wouldn't you love to have been there? I know I would. This is a profound ending. But this ending is also... Pregnant. And that's my second point. Number two, a pregnant ending. Because after all this happens, after the tabernacle is built, and after the Shekinah glory comes down and goes into the tabernacle, this is what we read in verse 35. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting, because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. What? So we get to the end. God's presence comes down to dwell in the midst of his people. But not even Moses can enter. I mean, if Moses can't enter, then what hope do we have? Moses is God's chosen leader of his people. What do you, what do you mean he, he can't enter? so we have this tabernacle we have the glory of the Lord presencing himself in the middle of it all but no one can actually go in what now? and that is really the pregnant ending that Exodus finishes with namely so how does anyone get in? I see him but how do I get there? how am I able to actually go and be in? In his presence. And for the answer for that, Moses and the people of God and indeed don't have to wait long. Because in the first opening verses of the book of Leviticus, which is effectively Genesis part 3. It is part 3 of this great series. Exodus part 2 if you will. Genesis part 3. Immediately as the Shekinah glory comes down on the tabernacle, we then read verse 1 of Leviticus, the Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. God isn't done. He's still speaking to Moses. And in the start of Leviticus and then all the way through Leviticus, here's the one thing that we learn. We learn that the only way to get into the presence of God is through the atoning sacrifice of another. There he is! But how do I get in? Only one way is through the atoning sacrificial blood of another. See, my friends, this tabernacle that is before the people that they're all gathered around and now staring at in awe and wonder. This tabernacle, it it drips with symbolism of majesty and sovereignty and greatness, but it also drips with symbolism of Eden. Symbolism of where it all began for mankind in the garden. Symbolism of where it all began with Adam and Eve and God dwelling together in perfect unity and humility. They were able to dwell together in perfect relationship. See, back in Genesis 1 and chapter chapter 2, what we see is that Eden was indeed an incredible place. A place of wonder, a place of flourishing, a place of beauty. But more than any of that, more than any of the blessings that were physically around, it was the place where God and man could actually dwell together. They dwelled together in perfect unity, in perfect friendship, in perfect relationship. But in Genesis chapter 3, when sin comes into the world, mankind rejects God. And because of that, mankind is driven from the garden. A holy God can't just spend time with a sinful people. So he drives them from the garden. He puts them out of the garden to the east. They are banished from his presence. But before they leave, he always promises to mankind, even in that early stage in Genesis 3, that I will make a way for you to come back. I will make a way back home for you. I will make a way for you, even though you are sinful mankind, to come back into the presence of my holiness. I will do that for you. And right here with this tabernacle that's been built, we have a living picture Of the way back to Eden. A living picture. A building designed by God to teach us our way back home. Our way back to his presence. Our way back to Eden. And this tabernacle dripped with symbolism of Eden. For example, in Genesis chapter 2 verses 11 and 12. We see God making Eden. His perfect and beautiful creation and he makes it as a place where he himself will dwell. And so it contains gold, it contains onyx stones and it contains precious jewels. Well, guess what? The tabernacle also contains gold and onyx stones and precious jewels as we see in Exodus chapter 25. In Genesis chapter 2 verse 9, We see that right in the Garden of Eden, there is a tree of life that is present, that God points out to them. And in Exodus chapter 25, we see God building his tabernacle with a golden lampstand in it. A golden lampstand that had cups and calyxes and flowers. Why? Because it's imagery of the tree of life. And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 24... We read, He drove out the man, God, He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, He placed cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way. God drove Adam and Eve out of the garden to the east, and then put two cherubim to guard the way back in. And what do we see in this tabernacle? We see in Exodus chapter 25 that God instructed them to always set it up facing east. And the very holy of holies, the place where God dwells, what is embroidered into the curtain? Two great golden cherubim. My friends, this imagery was surely not wasted on Israel. And it must not be wasted on us as well. Because the tabernacle is a picture of our way back to Eden It is a picture of our way to get back into the presence of God. It is a picture of Eden restored. It is a mini-Eden. Right here in chapter 40, God is in the very middle of the tabernacle. The people are all around wondering, how do I get back into Eden? How do I get back into his presence? And the answer that we learn about in Leviticus is the same answer that in fact we've already been prepared for in Exodus chapter 25. Namely, that the only way back into his presence is through the atoning sacrifice of another. And my friends, that's what the Ark of the Covenant was always about. The Ark of the Covenant that was placed right in the middle of the Holy of Holies. Just remember, in chapter 25, verse 17 to 22, this is what God says about building this Ark. He says, You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Hammered work shall you make them, on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end, and one on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. And there I will meet with you. See, as God then instructs Moses to build the tabernacle and then he presences himself in the tabernacle. He is presencing himself very specifically above the Ark of the Covenant where there would be two angels with their wings stretched out above it. God says, I will dwell there. What they are seeing through the outside of the tent is God dwelling above the Ark of the Covenant. And then in the Ark are the tablets. God's covenant to them. God's commandments to them. His description of how they will get right with him. How are they to live before him in a way that is acceptable to him. The challenge is ever since Genesis 3, none of us have been obeying those commands, have we? We haven't been able to keep all the commandments that God has given us. So how can a holy God who is hovering above the ark accept a man who is breaking these commands? Only one way is through the mercy seat. It's through the atoning sacrifice of another that will be spilt out and put on the mercy seat. See, in Hebrews 9 verse 22, we read, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And it's true. That's why all the way through the Old Testament, on the day of atonement, from this moment on, Once a year, the great high priest would make his way through the outer courts, through the inner courts, through into the Holy of Holies with two bowls of blood. In one of the bowls would be the blood of a bull. And through the other bowl would be the blood of a goat. And as he makes his way into the very presence of God, no doubt shaking and quaking in his boots... He would take the blood of the bull and he would, first of all, spill that onto the mercy seat, making atonement for his own sin as the priest. Even he needed a savior. And then he would take the blood of the goat and put that on the mercy seat. And God made it clear, through that atoning sacrificial blood, I will accept my people. I will atone for their Sin. Listen, year after year, decade after decade, century after century, that's what happened. The great high priest would go in each and every year and make atonement for people's sins through the blood of a sacrifice. Every year that would take place until finally John the Baptist shows up and he points towards Jesus Christ and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God, the one who comes to take away the sin of the world. It's a staggering moment. Year after year, sacrifices have been made in their hundreds. But now, effectively, John is saying, you can stop that. Because the one it pointed to is now here. Jesus Christ, the ultimate atoning sacrifice, has arrived for us all. It will be his blood that will be spilt in our place. And through faith in him, we may all now be entering into the presence of God. And Jesus Christ himself effectively tells John time and time again, you are right. Just like we read in Mark 10 verse 45. Even the son of man has come not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life away as a ransom for many. And so he did. Jesus Christ gave his life away 2,000 years ago at Calvary. He became a blood sacrifice for us. He came to give his life away as a propitiation for our sins, as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And as he hung on the cross just before he died, he says, it is Finished, and in that moment, the curtain, temp- the temple curtain, the temple that had by now replaced the tabernacle, the curtain is split in two between the holy of holies and all of mankind, from top to bottom. It's God the Father's saying, way of saying it is indeed finished. His sacrifice I accept in full. All now can come to me through the blood of my Son. This is a. Staggering moment. And it's pointed to right here in Exodus chapter 40. (laughs) What a pregnant ending it is, don't you think? Profound. but Pregnant. (laughs) Profound in all that is taking place here. But pregnant as you're left wondering, How can I get in? And the answer through Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Numbers all the way through the Gospels is that the answer is Jesus. The sacrifice points to another and his name is Jesus Christ himself. My friends, our greatest need then is not to get out of isolation. Our greatest need is not to receive a bigger paycheck or to find better health care. Our greatest need is for the presence of God himself. That's what we've been designed for. That's what we've been made for. It is at his right hand there is fullness of joy. My friends, if you're listening in today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you're wondering, does God really want to be with me? I want to encourage you, he definitely wants to be with you. For God so loved the world, Jesus tells us, that he gave his only begotten son, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. How much does God want to be with you? He wants to be with you so much that he sent his son as a sacrifice in your place so that you could come into his presence again. A role that Jesus gladly took on because he too loves you. Paul himself in Ephesians chapter 2 says, And now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. It's a promise for each and every person who puts their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour. It's a promise that you too can now enter into the tabernacle. You too can now come back into Genesis chapter 1 and 2. You too can now come back into the very presence of God. I want to encourage you to do that today. Come back to the one that you were made for. Because of your sin, you've been cut off from him. But because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you can come back to him. Put your faith in him as your Lord and Savior and know this presence for yourself. And if you are here today and you are a Christian, my friends, I want to encourage you, then never let a day go by where you're not enjoying the privilege of his presence for yourself. It is a staggering reality of Exodus chapter 40 that they would have dreamed about being able to go into his presence. I want to encourage you. It is what is on offer for you now. For in your presence there is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Two thousand years ago, Jesus literally tabernacled among us. And now... Through the gift of the Holy Spirit, he tells us he will tabernacle in us. Staggering. What they are looking at in Exodus chapter 40, they don't know how to get to. But Jesus himself comes and he is the fullness of God, the fullness of his Shekinah glory, living in a man. And then he tells us in John 14 and 16, for all those who put their faith in him as Lord and Savior, I will come through the glory of the Holy Spirit and make my dwelling in you. (laughs) Staggering. So my friends, go be with him. Don't let a day go by where you are not amazed at what it is to go to the presence of God. Worship him. Sit at his feet. Pray to him, your greatest need is to be with God. So through Jesus, go be with him. What an incredible book Exodus is. But far more than that, what an incredible saviour Jesus is. We have been drawn out to be drawn in. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for your word and I thank you for the book of Exodus. Lord, thank you for opening our eyes to the glories of what it means to be drawn out, to be drawn in. For that very presence that we see in Exodus chapter 40 is the very presence that through your Son we can now go to. Lord, I think of Joshua who we read about in later books who was a man that even when Moses came out of the presence of God, would go in and keep sitting there. Because he just wanted to be with you. Lord, would we be like him? Lord, would we be a people who regularly sit at your feet through the sacrifice of another, amazing ourselves in you, encouraging ourselves in you, glorifying you with praise. For at your right hand, There are pleasures forevermore. Lord, there is nothing that we desire more than you. So in you, may we find the sum of all that we have ever hoped for. In Jesus' name.